This is IVP. My guest in this episode of The Disruptors is Rowena Chu, a Me Too activist and advocate. She is a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein. This episode contains sensitive content about sexual assault. Rowena Chu is a hashtag MeToo activist and advocate. She is a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein, and she left the film industry after suffering sexual assault from him in 1998. She is portrayed by actor Angela Yeo in the 2022 film She Said, which is based on a nonfiction book of the same name. Thank you, Rowena, for joining us on The Disruptors. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. When I read your New York Times op-ed, which came out in 2019, I have to say I cried and I was surprised at crying because I I just read it recently because I knew about Harvey Weinstein um, having, I studied Hollywood and familiar with the cases, but so much of it, I think your op-ed really resonated with me as a survivor myself. And so if I may, can I read a couple of sentences from the piece before asking you about it? Of course, Absolutely. Okay, so you write, Harvey Weinstein told me he liked Chinese girls. He liked them because they were discreet. He said, because they knew how to keep a secret. Hours later, he attempted to rape me. So what was it like, I wanted to know, to tell your story, to write this op-ed after staying silent for more than 20 years? I had a period of time where, obviously, we were imprisoned, really, by the NDA in this prison of silence. We couldn't speak even personally to our family members, my parents, my sister. We couldn't speak to our circle of friends. As is now famous, we weren't allowed to speak to lawyers or therapists or doctors and certainly not to any press members. So there was that period of time and that period of time was incredibly long. It was 20 years. And there were certain coping mechanisms that I employed during that period of time. But then there was that odd period of time of two years where a lot of people came out with their stories, including Zelda Perkins, who was, of course, the other half of this NDA. And I still chose to remain silent. I think it was complex. There were a lot of different factors. I had young children. I'm Asian. And I think within the Asian culture, it's very hard to speak of these sorts of topics. Um, I mean, it's hard to talk about sex, let alone sexual assault. So Mm. it did take me a really long time to think about, do I want to take this step? I thought that there were many people who had more of a platform and who were more articulate than me and already famous, you know, people like Ashley Judd and Gwyneth Paltrow, who were used to being advocates for very many issues. And they would be able to slide into advocating on this, you know, very simply. And I just didn't think almost in a sort of Asian apologetic kind of way, I didn't think what could I add to the equation? I just thought my voice wouldn't be of much value and who would want to hear me? So you're right. The uh, writing of the op-ed was one of the first things that I did. I went on the Today Show in early September 2019. I think that date was the 9th of September. And within a month, the op-ed had come out. It came out on October the 5th. So I think the first step of agency to reclaim my own story was to write the op-ed. And I didn't know what would come of it, actually. It felt a little to me like detonating a bomb. 
I dropped a bomb and I ran away and I didn't know what the repercussions would be. And in many ways, the fallout from the op-ed has been hugely surprising. Mm. In what ways? I think the initial response, you know, remembering that, because this is now three years later and I've I've done a lot of public speaking. And in some ways I look back at the time when I wrote my op-ed and I think, wow, that was an entirely different person with an entirely different story in an entirely different context. But given that at that time, I still was of the opinion that my voice mattered little and I didn't know who would listen to it, I thought that the immediate response to the op-ed was truly overwhelming. I mean, I've described it before as a tsunami of response, largely from Asian sexual assault survivors. Because the story, remember, the story and the Me Too movement had ignited two years ago and the Weinstein story had already been out for two years. So I think a lot of sexual assault survivors who were going to come forward had already come forward with their hashtag Me Too stories. But there was a sort of hidden group of people, uh, many Asian sexual assault survivors who was, had watched the movement, who thought of it as relevant in a Western context, who hadn't really ha- yet had, I was going to say the courage, but that's a wrong way of putting it, who were, didn't really feel that they were in a circumstance to speak out. And a lot of those women wrote to me. So I started to get kind of a mountain of letters from older women who were in their 70s, whose perpetrator had already passed long ago, whose parents had passed long ago, and they really didn't have anyone in their lives who remembered what had happened to them when they were young girls. Um, All the way down to young women who were 24, as I was back in 98, and working in the film industry. And they were like, I'm an Asian, I'm an assistant, working in the film industry, I'm 24 years old. And this, what is happening to me on a daily basis is really difficult to talk about. So... I I read that quote and just from everything you've been saying about the silence and being Asian and perhaps being Christian as well, because you talked about not talking about sex. And at the time, I think based on what I've read of you and listening to your interviews, you were very, very young and just had, what, one boyfriend at the time? So, I mean, to, to talk about something like that, I can only imagine to be impossible. Yeah, I grew up in Chinese church in London. And uh, at at that time, uh, you're right, I was dating my first boyfriend who I met through youth group in Chinese church in London. And yeah, I think it's um, hard to describe to people outside of the overseas Chinese Chinese Christian culture, what growing up in that environment was like. And when I say things like that, people think I'm joking. But I remember that we couldn't be in a room with the door closed, even if we were getting ready for worship, if there were two people of the of opposite genders in the same room. So, you know, it it wasn't an environment where people spoke freely about sex. We learned a lot about so-called boy-girl relationships, but they were they were called BGR. And we it's interesting, looking back, I felt that a lot of it was about the do's and the don'ts, but a lot of the underlying reasons why you didn't do this, say why you didn't leave yourself in a room with a person of the opposite sex with the door shut, you know, things like words like temptation were bandied around. But I think what was missing in our generation is we didn't really get a full exploration of the emotional reasons underlying why the church might expect certain behaviors of us. I think that's changed. A lot of my children's generation, they have a lot of so-called SEL curriculum in their school environments. They talk about social emotional learning. And I think they have a better understanding of human motivation and human psychology. And I think a lot of that was missing from the dialogue when we were kids. Yeah. And I don't think consent was really a, a word that was thrown around growing up. 
It was more just purity culture, right? Just keep yourself from temptation, like you said, and that somehow you're in control of it rather than perhaps, um, like, I don't feel like victimization was really talked about. It was the idea that everyone had a choice in sexual relations, right? And therefore choose the right path. Don't choose the sinful path, right? So, and both um, inside and outside the church, society still very much is, you know, very, very much victim blames, whether they, they do that consciously or unconsciously. So the sense is there is something you as a woman could have done. There's questions about what were you wearing? Why were you there? Did you scream? Did you tell anyone? Did you run? And a lot of the agency is on the survivor or the victim in this situation more than the perpetrator. And that's interesting because I think we all acknowledge that often the perpetrator has much more power. In my situation, the perpetrator was white, male, much older, rich, had access to a lot of power. You know, he could call like Robert De Niro to his office at a moment's notice. So obviously he had a lot of power within the industry that we worked in. And I talk about the four dynamics, the four power imbalances. Uh, And yet in the dialogue subsequent to that attempted rape, a lot of the questions have been, what did I do as a young person of 24? Did I scream? Did I run? Who did I report it to? What was I wearing at the time? Was I really wearing two tights and two jackets? Who took those pairs of tights off? Was it me? Was it him? And so I think the line of questioning is very unhealthy in terms of it imposes upon young people an expectation that if they get raped, it's their fault. There's something that they didn't do to remove themselves from that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that a lot of the Christian purity culture and maybe just conversations with young Christian women, maybe Asian American women, if we ever actually, I don't think Asian American families ever talked about sex, but um, no, all, but right? certainly in the church, anything, it was like, you have to keep yourself pure. And it is absolutely feeds into that victim blaming and, and putting yourself like, yeah, in, in situations that you shouldn't be in the, the, the whole Billy Graham rule, like what you said about keeping you and your young boyfriend, you, both of you very young apart because in always having to have a chaperone, the idea is that somehow that's it. <laughs> like that's the solution, right? To, to anything beyond just, I don't know, casual relationships rather than thinking about consent. I really am so thankful for actually the movement, the Me Too movement, really starting the conversations on consent. So, you know, uh, as a as an advocate now, you, you also mentioned that in Sojourners, just to continue on the church kind of relationships, you mentioned in your Sojourners essay about how the Asian church can better help survivors. Specifically, you mentioned that the power model between pastor and congregants in Asian churches often mirrors that of a parent and child and how that imbalance needs to change. Could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think that uh, the Me Too movement highlights the danger of an overly patriarchal society where um, there are large power differences between men and women, people in power, people not in power, and in society, you know, frequently people of color and people not of color. I mean, these are power dynamics we're all familiar with. And I think the Me Too movement brings a lot of those into relief. And so I think in the Sojourner's essay, we had been discussing, you know, how some of those are echoed in a church situation. Now, 
this isn't every church. It's like, it's very difficult to generalize. I grew up in a Chinese church um, that was in the UK and was particularly patriarchal, I think, in terms of its attitudes. It was, you know, it was pretty old fashioned. And since I've come to the US, there's certainly very many progressive Asian American churches. So I kind of hesitate to generalize across churches. I think that's somewhat dangerous. Uh, what I will say though, that all, what many churches have in common, whether they're progressive or more on the old-fashioned end of the spectrum, is there's very little what I would consider to be healthy discussion around sexual relationships in a church environment. And I think it's kind of important that we talk about the elephant in the room, because before we even get to sexual assault and rape and all the terrible things that could happen, not just in the world, but actually sometimes in churches themselves, which is a whole other, you know, kettle of fish that is very difficult to discuss. But before we even raise the stakes to sexual assault and rape, I'm talking about if you come from a situation of purity culture where you haven't been in a room with a person of the opposite sex and you get to the altar and you marry young and so on, I think the church offers very little guidance really as in terms of how, what does one relate? And this is not like, I'm not talking about a biology talk about what goes where, but as we all know, marriage and sex within marriage is far more complicated, actually, an issue than sometimes the church makes it out to be. Sometimes the church makes it out to be this fairy tale where Cinderella and her prince walk off into the sunset and all is well. If you are young and you have no sexual experience and you get married and you're not relating well emotionally, which often translates to not relating well in the bedroom. Who do you talk to about that? Is there someone in in the church that you trust that you can actually come forward about that? In my experience and in anecdotally talking to people in various churches around the world of various persuasions, it's actually very difficult. So I think what I said both in Sojourners and I think in various other faith-based podcasts is If the church isn't in a position where they can talk about what they consider to be healthy sexual relationships endorsed by the church, i.e. within a marriage, how are you going to support people who somehow have, for whatever reason, veered from that? You can, certainly there are, you know, there's the issue of sex outside of marriage, but there's also the issue of what if you are attacked in the workplace or on the domestic front or worse still in the church itself? Do people really feel, do women, do victims, survivors, women really feel they can come forward with these issues and be heard? I That is a great question because I don't know the answer to that. I feel like in all the churches I've been to, I think the bigger the church, I feel like it's harder, right? Because a lot of times there's a, a more of a power structure and hierarchy. Um, but even in the smaller churches, then you're kind of like, oh, what are people going to think of me if I do come forward? My reputation, everybody knows who I am. I mean, there's just so endless kind of reasons why not to speak out and to just leave. And so, yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right to kind of point out the the lack of transparency and the lack of ability, I think, for and maybe lack of training. I don't even know if pastors are trained to talk about this well, right? Um, and and so, yeah, it, those are really good, good questions and and <laughs> and challenges in the church. And I think it starts from uh, you know even before you get to the level of formal training. I think it starts with are people willing anecdotally and in formally and amongst themselves as a community to address these issues, to to talk about them at all, to even have, to be open-hearted and to lay them on the table. And then we can think about, you know, more seriously, pastors who are often in a position of confidant and therapist and so on, you know, what kind of formal training do they need to support these conversations? But I think 
it's a grassroots thing. If it starts with people being hesitant to mention it, either in from the pulpit or in coffee mornings after sermons, if you can't raise it informally, you don't have a chance of raising it more formally, I think. So there's it's kind of baby steps, but the steps need to be taken where we open a dialogue. And there is no time like the present where the society around the church is, uh, you know, that there's a big cultural movement going on at the moment, hashtag me too. And then the smaller movements that are sprouted from that, hashtag church too, have tried to encourage people within a Christian setting, within the church environment, to actually take a good hard look at themselves, their institutions, and maybe some of the toxicity that is happening within those institutions. Yeah, definitely. For for the U.S. church and the global church to survive, there has to be openness. And you're right. It, it, well, certainly it should come from the top in terms of responsibility in the institution. But like you said, that the grassroots, that people can start by being willing to have these conversations, right? Or or at least even introducing them to the staff and saying, we need to be having these conversations. And especially, I think, Sunday schools and youth ministries that's where I feel like uh, it's, yeah, that's where purity culture really, really can, can fester in a bad way. And I, I, I don't actually, you know, I don't actually know whether youth groups today have, have exited that and have they really left that behind? I, I actually don't know. So yep. I hope so. Yep. But what we do know is the current generation, you know, my kids range, they're 13, 11, eight and five. So they range from the preschool to the high school. Um, but what we do know is the current generation, you know, social justice is a huge issue for the current generation. And they're very aware of issues around Me Too, Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate and so on. And so for the church to remain relevant, which is a carrying cry in every generation of churchgoers, um, it, I think there is a real need for it to acknowledge social trends um, in order not to lose its young people, really, because they are very embedded in these cultural phenomena and cultural movements, really. And I think if the church stays out of those discussions, it's very hard for it to stay relevant to young people. Absolutely. And I think that, unfortunately, from my personal experience, some of the more conservative-leaning churches and members of evangelicalism are actively working against those movements and uh, and trashing those movements as quote-unquote woke and not not Christian. And so talk about like, yeah, not, not just not being relevant, but trying to counter these movements that are doing a lot of good to help people in the margins, people who have been victimized and exploited to be able to have a voice. So thank thank you for bringing this up. And I mean, we we know that there's a lot of anti-women movements, right, that have come out of the church. And and it's really hard, I think, to, for me to reconcile, like, is this the the faith that I, I didn't grow up in a church, I came to faith on my own as actually a young woman, like who was around 12, just coming into womanhood. And so thinking about where where the faith, um, not not the faith, maybe the culture of Christianity, right? Of especially in, in the United States, it's it doesn't feel like safe a lot of times. I mean, as an adult, I did not feel safe. <laughs> um, you know, in the last certainly in the last, you know, five, six years. So But it is fascinating. I mean, actually, if you go back to the New Testament, a lot of what the current evangelicals, they draw upon Pauline theology to support the the patriarchal structure within the church. If you actually go back and look at Jesus's teachings, he was, of course, extremely pro 
women, but just marginalized people in general, Samaritans, Gentiles, women, the woman at the well, you know, there are numerous examples, or, or children for that matter, you know, teach the little children to come to me. There are numerous examples of where Jesus specifically went out to reach the out, underreached, the the outcasts, the marginalized people. And so I, I can't help but feel that if, I mean, people always say this, if he were here today, but if he were here today, I feel like he would be a huge supporter of the Me Too movement, Stop Asian Hate, Black Lives Matter, a lot of these so-called, you know, woke cultural changes that the church is keen to speak out against. And so, yeah, I'm a bit baffled, but, you know, I do identify as a progressive Christian. So, you know, I've noticed that in this country, there's kind of never the twain shall meet. And that's, that's actually pretty interesting to me because as a European, I'm often seeking nuance and I try to see, you know, this, that space where the two political um, extremes can meet. And that space in recent times seems to be disappearing. And that's a, a point of sadness, I think. Yeah, it's really hard. I actually think that if Jesus were here, he might be labeled as too woke. Right. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Right. Look at who so he I hung think- out with. Look at who he hung out with. But I mean, that, I think that was a point, right? The the reason why he had a contentious relationship with the Pharisees and Sadducees is they were the establishment. And they did consider him too woke. They didn't use that language, but they certainly considered... Like, he hung out with fishermen, and he was like his cousin with John the Baptist in the desert, some ranting, raving, crazy person in sandals. So uh, led relief. But anyway, regardless of what he wore, he was definitely crazy. So, you know, these are people on the fringes of society. Jesus hung out with people on the fringes of society, not the mainstream, not the people that had money, not the people that had power. And it's interesting that you see that dynamic repeated again and again, even in our current times. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just, just trying to live out Jesus's faith. Like what would Jesus do? Like, I feel like that was something that, you know, like we wore those bracelets and stuff. And now I feel like, you know, I don't know if the American evangelical church talks about Jesus's ministry as much, right? Because I agree, like it's so obvious in terms of advocacy and heart for the sinners, right? The the sick and not the healthy or the underprivileged and not the privileged. Yeah. And I think, you know, watching, for example, the movie She Said, I think just seeing just on screen so many women who have been victimized and coming, there, there was this, I think, both, I think I was struck by how hard it was to watch the silence. Like, you know, when I asked you about the silence, silence, so many women having to live in silence for so many years. I don't think I've ever seen that actually depicted, like the the trauma that comes from silence, as well as, you know, the, the kind of empowerment that comes from finally being able to speak out. So tell me what it was like to have this movie, you know, to have the book and then have the movie come out this year. It is a very odd feeling, of course, a very odd feeling to have your life portrayed in a movie. I mean, I just feel that there's no real parallel experience to that. Um, And I think it would be odd anyway, even if it were portraying a story that was unequivocally magnificent. And as it is, this is a really complicated story with lots of different layers. You know, I've sometimes described it as a bit like an onion that you have to peel. It's a complicated story. It's an ambiguous story with much nuance. And so... I often find myself in a position with the film where I at once acknowledge that the film is a tremendous triumph. Um, it, it is well written. It is beautifully acted. It has a very important message. And so I'm very proud of the movie and I'm proud of being associated with it. And I know that many people have done tremendous work and they've been largely women. You know, Jodie and Megan, who ran the original investigation, who wrote the book, whose story it is based on, 
obviously are heroes in the eyes of society. But then also Dee Dee, who produced it, and Rebecca, who wrote it, and Maria, who directed it, are all incredible women in their own right with incredible careers. And, the, and this is a monumental achievement to the talent of those women pulling together, as well as Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, who play the leads. But whilst I say that about the movie, which absolutely all of that is true, nobody pays me to say that about the movie, it is also an incredibly difficult movie for the individual survivor to watch. I... That process of taking a very private trauma for me and making it public, no matter how sympathetic or sensitive um, the treatment of it has been in the hands of of Jodie and and Megan, and then later of Dee Dee and Rebecca and Maria, and no matter how empathetic they are about the survivor condition, it's difficult. It's going to be difficult for me not to feel that, um, I mean, the story is out of my control. It's going to be difficult not to feel that um the film is I won't say it's an abuse that's too far a word but I'm trying to I think it's hard to describe I think I think that you are subject to currents that you can't control and that's not fun if your story is as sensitive and vulnerable and difficult a story to tell as this one And I think I'm going to be honest and say, sometimes there is a resentment against the idea that my story is often filtered by gatekeepers. You know, originally my story was told by the New York Times, in the New York Times investigation, it's told in a book, it's told in a movie. But for me to tell my story myself in my own voice is actually very difficult. I've been trying to write a memoir for three years. I get really fascinating feedback. I get the kind of feedback, I get universal rejection from publishers, but I get feedback in almost two forms, in almost two extremes. I get people who say, oh, the Harvey Weinstein story, that's surely over commercial and overexposed. You know, Rowena's story has been, and she said the book and she said the movie. So she's all over the place. You know, we feel like we've heard enough of her story. And then I get uh, the other set of rejections, which say, you know, Rowena really deserves to have her voice heard, but it's a very niche story. We don't know who, you know, we don't feel that the Asian American market or even the Asian American Christian market is large enough to sustain a book like this. So I think that's really fascinating. If you actually sort of pick those statements apart, that's really fascinating. My story is simultaneously seen as a story of niche and nuance that's also been over-commercialized and overexposed. So which is it? Um, I certainly feel that I, I rarely feel, I should say, I, that I'm in control of my own story. There's gatekeepers, there's various medium books, films, and this and that and the other. And I get asked, as a follow-on question to that question you asked me of how do I feel about being in a film, I get asked, do I feel the film was a true portrayal? And I always laugh because there's no way it can be a true portrayal because there's so many layers that are heaped on top of it. I'm so sorry to hear about the memoir issue. That is, that that feels like a a kind of they don't know what to do with Asian American women's stories, even if it's intersecting with a major story. It's like I think they put us in a very narrow box, and anything that isn't that fascinating. Yes, and I have huge admiration. I've got to give a shout out right now at this juncture in the interview to my fellow townsperson. Uh, 
fellow Palo Alton, I should say, uh, Chanel Miller. She, I mean, she, she's mm. written this extraordinary book about surviving sexual assault. And whilst I'm an enormous fan of her book, and she actually also happens to be from Palo Alto, so there's a very personal connection to this book, I find it interesting that almost all the feedback to my book mentions her because they always say things like, but we've already had a Chanel Miller. Uh, and, oh, and I no. sort of have to bite my lip not to say, so in other words, the world is only ready for one Asian sexual assault survivor. And I absolutely don't resent any of the attention the book has got. What I don't like is this overgeneralization where one Asian is the same as every other Asian. So therefore, if we have a token Asian that has done this one thing, i.e. write about sexual assault, there is no room in the world for another, you know, goodness, God forbid there be another Asian sexual assault survivor, because what if you're not as good as, as what, what if your book is different from Chanel's, then that's not valid. And I, I, you know, that's the inherent racism in that statement is actually staggering. But, you know, these are all, as you say, woke left-wing people who would be shocked to hear me think that this is racist. But I think there's a lot of unconscious bias in this that really needs unpacking. Oh my goodness. Yes, that's absolutely <laughs> racist. I cannot believe that they would compare you to Chanel and say that there's only what we've already heard that story. <laughs> right. It reminds me of, have you read Minor Feelings by Kathy Parkhan? Yes. Yeah. Cause she, she talks book. about, yeah. it is. And she talks about, there's one essay that she does about an Asian American poet who was, you know, uh, I think assaulted and murdered or murdered and how she actually then kind of deconstructs or investigates how Asian Crimes against Asian women, violent crimes, are not are, like it's like we're not as humanized as other women, right? It's like it's ignored. People don't investigate. People don't care. And I think that that's what I think of when you when you say that even you know people publishers are saying we we can only have one Asian woman sexual assault story because that that's dehumanizing to me. Yeah, that's right. And and I have been on podcasts. With, together with Angela Yeo and Ashley Chu, who play me in the movie. And the three of us sometimes do podcasts together. And that gets very interesting because obviously they come from different industries, but we all have this common thread of the dehumanizing or the objectifying of Asian women. And they can talk about it from a theatrical point of view, from a filmic point of view in Hollywood, and I can talk about it from a corporate point of view. But I think that's very interesting because we all share this experience of being tied together by She Said, but we're also bound by this commonality that media over the generations has created this stereotypical image of Asian women, how they should look and feel and behave. And that creates prejudices that we come up against in our various lines of work, as well as makes us uh, much more likely targets, unfortunately, for sexual assault, for bullying, for harassment, and so on. We had talked in a past podcast, the three of us, about how stereotypes like Susie Wong and Miss Saigon and the Asian characters that remain prevalent in a Western in the Western mind in terms of media and entertainment are actually very dangerous. If you think about, they are symbols of an oppressed victim in Miss Saigon, in Susie Wong, and so on. They they need a white saviour to come by helicopter and come and winch them out of their situations. They uh, rarely have agency themselves. They are compliant, obedient, and beautiful, and in need of rescue. I think that is risky. Absolutely. And it does also remind me of the Atlanta spa shootings where they were originally not thinking that was a hate crime because somehow Asian women as sex workers is just a default. It's not not even uh, seen as a stereotype because it's the singular image that 
is thrown around in Hollywood and musicals, like you said, that that somehow we become synonymous with that objectification in everyday life, even though we are just as diverse. Like Asian sex workers are not more populous than any other racial, ethnic, geopolitical group. But but the stereotype is so strong. And I think that Hollywood has a huge role in that. So that's that we don't have enough counter images of Asian women in our vast diversity to counter the the objectified image that is so strong and yes. so prevalent. That's so. absolutely right. And that is why, for she said specifically, I think, A, it was very important. My, my first request when I was approached by this studio to see how I felt about my life story being part of the book and then the movie is to say, well, you know, one of my conditions would be that I really want to be portrayed in a culturally authentic manner. So first of all, that means that I want to be cast as Asian, but I'm going to go a bit further than that. Uh, I am, for instance, not an Asian American, and I would like you to work a little bit harder and find a British Chinese person to play me because I want the accent to be authentic. I want where I grew up to be known because otherwise it wouldn't be true to who I am. But I also think it's really important that between my husband and I, we have given three Asian actors, Edgar Astor Chin, Angela Yeo, Ashley Chu, who are not, none of the three of them are well-known big names. And I want to say their names again, because I want them to be known. Edgar Ashley Chin, Angela Yeo, and Ashley Chu. We gave them roles that were not takeaway girl number three, or the prostitute in the whorehouse, or the doctor in the ER hospital. These were roles for a three-dimensional person who had a back history, and they were spoken roles. They were small roles, but it was important that they were actually people, that they weren't there just to portray portray their Asian identity. You know, Edward was there as a father who was cleaning out a dirty minivan, or Angela was there as a survivor of Harvey Weinstein along the lines of people who are not of Asian race. And I think that is important. But despite the fact we did all that, we still have, interestingly, a lot of times I've seen on the publicity for the movie, that classic image of the character, the, the actress that plays Zelda Perkins sitting in a cafe talking to Jodie Cantor and handing over paperwork, being very strong and dynamic. And then the scene of Laura on the beach while her children play, again, sharing the story with Jodie Cantor. But the most commonly used image of me and my character is Ashley Chu crying in a corridor. And sometimes those three images are put next to one another. And Angela and Ashley and I point out that it is really hard when we see the only Asian story. In fact, the only story of di diversity story. Let, I'm not just the only Asian story. I'm the only diversity story. I'm the only non-white story in the movie. Uh, I'm portrayed as a victim, whilst the other two are portrayed as a position of strength. And I think we have to be very careful when we're, when we're juxtapositioning an Asian sexual assault victim against two white victims. I think subconsciously there's a temptation to portray that person of color in the weakest possible, most vulnerable possible position. And I think that is also risky. Yeah, no, now that you talk about it, I mean, even the, the actor who plays your husband, he's a little bit taken aback and almost victimized by the journalist by you know being surprised and that's all we see right, right. just him right. being surprised him being kind of you know in a position of weakness because he didn't have that knowledge and then you're right the the, the times that we saw you also and so i can see how that would be really hard to watch 
Yeah, I mean, we're in an age of microaggressions and subconscious bias. Uh, I mean, there is conscious bias and there are macroaggressions. Let's be clear. I mean, there are clear racial attacks. And I'm not talking about it in that realm because I think it is also important to shed light upon microaggressions and subconscious bias. And subconsciously, it looks great because people are always like, oh, you've got an Asian story and she said, and I appreciate that triumph. But at the same time, um, I think that we, in, in portraying the film, in being involved with them, in promoting the film, I think it's important to portray Asians, it, to put Asians in a position where they have agency over their own story. And sometimes I feel that my story or my image perhaps is used in a way where I don't have agency. And I think that I want to be, I want to shed light on that and be aware of that because I think that given the history of Asians in America and how they have often lacked agency, see internment camps where they're taken off against their will, I think it's really important in this day and age that we see Asian role models taking agency over their own lives and their own stories. Ugh. So good, Rowena. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Amen. And now talking to you. Yes. And now talking to you. I hate the movie. No, (laughs) No, and that's absolutely not my intention. And that's and that's and that's the ambiguity of it, because I do still think it's a beautifully observed, one exquisitely acted, wonderfully written film. And it has an incredibly important message behind it. I'm still doing screenings in my own hometown for friends and friends of friends, people who know me. And I wouldn't do that if I weren't super supportive of the movie. Nobody pays me. I'm not endorsing it. But I do think the movie has something very important to say. And I give a Q&A at the end of every session. And there's always somebody who says and who shares an incredible thing. And the movie has impacted people and made them cry and caused conversations. So I am not in any way detracting from the power of the movie. But at the same time, I want to be able to juxtapose that by saying, we've got to be careful about how we use Asian voices, how we position Asian stories, Asian characters. And whilst I perceive what we have done with She Said to be a significant step in the right direction, it's still, you know, one stone in a massive mountain that we have to climb. What we should do is get a podcast together with the Everything Everywhere all at once, folks. (laughs) And then we talk about Everything Everywhere. And She Said all in one go, because I think there's so much to say about Asian, the portrayal of Asian people in film in both those movies. Absolutely. Yeah, that one is, I think, such a surprise because the, you know, Asian woman over the age of 40 has agency, absolute agency. She's not objectified and she's not perfect. And what a great movie. And it's got box office success and award success. It's like a dream, it's like a dream child. So I hope that you will invite Stephanie Sue to come and talk as well. Oh, I totally should. I know Stephanie. Yeah, she's wonderful. Yeah. So I think that I wanted to also ask you about if there is any kind of book or movie or cultural artifact that you have come across and has been meaningful to you that you would recommend to the Disruptors listeners that you have that's helped you in your journey. Oh my goodness. Well, my obvious, I didn't know you were going to ask this question because my obvious, I would go, I would absolutely go back to Chanel's book because I think if there is one book that has really helped me in both my journey in terms of going public, but also in terms of writing my as yet to be published memoir, or just in terms of, you know, processing that whole um, experience of being nameless for a really long time. Because of course my story came out in 2017 but my name didn't come out until 
2019. And so that message of Know My Name really resonated with me. And so even though we've already mentioned Chanel's book, I feel I must mention it again, because I I think there's so many parallels to what I experienced and I have huge admiration for her. Um, And of course, by coincidence, we're from the same very small town. So there's also a personal connection there. So I think that book is incredible. I am very much looking forward to my other Palo Alto Neighbours book, uh, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. I think she is due to come out with her memoir shortly. I obviously haven't read that yet, but that's another book that I see as an ally, I suppose, in this journey of what I'm doing, because what I've been doing is... um, you know, it's it's so unusual that it's really hard to find people who can relate to or, or have in any way experienced a modicum of what we're, we're currently experiencing. And then just in terms of other books, you know, Minor Feelings, which I read recently, of course, also had a great impact on me. Constant Wu's book as well, um, Making a Scene. I read that also. And the idea of being Asian in a Hollywood setting or in film television, which is, you know, very different and difficult industry to be in as I discovered in 98, you know, that also resonated greatly with me. So I think we're rich at the moment in a lot of books about the Asian experience. And I encourage your listeners to go out and seek some of these. Hmm. You know, I do have one curiosity. So now that you've left Hollywood and then you kind of came back through this film, do you um, have any feelings about, you know, Hollywood? Are there regrets? Are there... Are you like, phew, I'm glad I <laughs> dodged that bullet <laughs> with this industry. What, what do you think about Hollywood now as, you know, t- gosh, how many years later since you were, I guess you were in London, right, London, as an yeah. assistant? You know, um, it is a very toxic industry. I think there's still a lot of toxicity in it. And of course, there's always going to be a part of me that feels, oh, I am glad I dodged that bullet. But I, I think it is not right. I, you know, I would like to see a world for my children where they have the freedom to explore their passions fully, that they're not locked out of an industry just because, you know, they didn't win a battle against somebody who was much older than them and much more powerful than them. They were essentially oppressed out of an industry. I recognize that Hollywood has its failings and there are many. I think it's tragic that as a young person who grew up dreaming of of the cinema, of really having a passion for the industry, who spent her whole time, her limited pocket money on going to watch movies, who spent, who dodged lectures and tutorials, sorry to my former professors, to make movies and to stay up all night staging stage plays and having that immense amount of passion and seeing the people who graduated from me, uh, with me from Oxford in the 1990s, they now head up major theatres in London's West End. They are film producers. They have illustrious careers. And to know that I couldn't pursue that path, I think that is um, very difficult to come to terms with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel, I feel like if I were in your shoes, I would feel like, yeah, like it's totally unfair that something like that was robbed that opportunity for you and, and yeah, and being on the red carpet and all the feelings that you must feel that you've so graciously shared with us about the film. If you could make a film, any film and have all the resources, what would you do? What would you make? You will be unsurprised to hear I have a script. I have a script. My husband and I wrote a script. It is called Shakespeare Out of Love. And it's a story of two young assistants. This may sound familiar to you. Two young assistants who start work on Shakespeare in Love. 
and they rapidly uncover the underbelly of the film industry. So they're working on this great movie. It seems very fun. It's an every girl story. They're young. They're super excited. And they realize that something dark and quite heavy is going on underneath the surface. And as they dig further, of course, one of them is assaulted and there's a fallout from that. So um, Shakespeare out of love because it is a counter to Shakespeare in love. I got chills. I love it. I love it because I love that movie and knowing your history, that is exactly the kind of movie we need. And with you as director <laughs> or producer, whatever role you want, and yeah, having that voice centered, that's that's what I want for you. So I'll, I'm going to pray. <laughs> Thank <real> you. <laughs> and I want to see that, you know, in a couple of years. That's awesome. Thank you, Rowena, for your time and being so vulnerable and so gracious and just sharing with our listeners. Thank you. Of course. It was a great pleasure to speak with you. To learn more about how issues of sexual misconduct and abuse affect faith communities, we encourage you to check out the IVP book, The Me Too Reckoning, by pastor and survivor Ruth Everhart. Named Publisher Weekly's Religion Book of the Year in 2020, The Me Too Reckoning takes an honest look at the ways that the church has not been immune to incidents of sexual misdeeds and explores the damage done to individuals, families, and communities. You can use the code DISRUPT at ivpress.com for 30% off and free U.S. shipping of The Me Too Reckoning.